Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. Sounds great. All right, well, let's get this show on the road. Here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Ty Boye Robinson, the founder of Cap EQ Impact. Ty, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure uh, to have another impact investor on the show today. So uh, for the sake of the audience today, Ty, let's just uh, fill our audience in a little bit about impact investing. What does it mean to you? How did you arrive at this role? Absolutely. Well, CapiQ is impact investing and advising. So when we think about impact investing, we're actually thinking about all levels of investment. That's financial capital, human capital, intellectual capital, even political capital. And so for us, investing is broad. And when you think about impact investing, it's really simple at its simplest terms. It's expecting both a financial and a social return for your, for that investment. And when you say it, uh, for people listening out there, um, environmental, social return, break it down in the layman's terms, what are you measuring exactly? You know, for us, when we think about what, what we call uh, the impact we're looking to see in the world is actually equitable impact. So to us, it's the intersection of environmental, social, and governance, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so if you look at ESG, typically, that's the environmental, social, governance, particularly in the United States, I actually heard you on another podcast you were doing, Kevin. Uh, it's like E is really big and people are measuring environment and carbon footprint and all these things. And then S is like, shh, everybody just move past the S. And then maybe, maybe G, we put some women on some boards and some people of color, done, right? And so for us, the reason why it's the intersection of ESG and DEI is the S is messy because so much of S comes from a history of racial inequality. 
and comes from a history of really taking away rights, whether it be women or people of color, which have manifested themselves over time in a variety of issues. When you, so when you ask on what you measure, it's the difference in educational outcomes, the difference in health outcomes. It's really the justice part of uh, ESG is, is anyone better off on all the dimensions of what makes life great as an American or a citizen across the globe? And, and help um, you know the traditional investor out there, right? Why is it so important? Because they think, okay, well, do, do I just have, to, just have to check a box now? Um, why is, especially the S portion, let's say, let's, let's go one by one maybe, if we will. Let's, let's start with the E, actually. Let me, it's a traditional investor. Why is it important for me as a traditional investor to care about the E? Well, you know, I think the environmental one is much easier to answer these days. And, and I think when you think about impact investing overall, the pieces that are easier for investors and anyone to consume are the ones that they touch directly. So environment is easy to understand because, oh, by the way, how many floods, flat fires, you know, earthquakes can we have within a more increasing opportunity or frequent rate than we're having now? And so it's really difficult to say, oh, no, no, environment is a really long ways away when your day-to-day -day life is, is disrupted. I feel like similarly with health outcomes, COVID-19 is an example of, oh, well, we need to care about, at least in the S, the health part, because we can see how interconnected we are. But the other pieces around the S, actually, if you think about it, is if you look at all of the ways that capital is the fuel often of our capitalist system, right? And so capitalism either helps fuel inequity or it can actually help fuel growth in a way that everyone can benefit. And so as a result of racial inequality, which is often baked into that S, in the past 20 years, the United States economy has lost $16 trillion. So if you're an investor, that's a big number, right? That's over the last 20 years, $16 trillion. And this is from a report about the racial wealth gap that McKinsey and company wrote. And if we could actually be more thoughtful about how to invest equitably in our companies and our capital system, then we could grow by $5 trillion over the next five years. So those are hard numbers. And it's straightforward in that way. And so that's part of why people need to care as an investor. I think the other way is, you know, outside of hard numbers, some of the qualitative pieces is, you know, there's three trends that are affecting everyone. Trend number one is that there's $30 trillion of wealth changing hands to a group, of, a generation that cares more about social impact. And so they're starting to put pressure on the market for what they expect as a result of their investment. The second trend is that millennials and other people who are in the workforce expect to have social impact as part of their job, expect their companies to be good citizens. So you're not going to get the labor force of tomorrow. You know, all the CEOs always say, what keeps me up at night? And it's always talent. Well, if that's what keeps you up at night and you're not caring about impact, then you're going to be an insomniac. And then the third issue is the fact that consumers are paying a premium for things that they believe do well and do good. And so if you're just a hard numbers person, you make more money 
if you're actually investing and working on things that help drive social change and impact. And people are being a lot more explicit, particularly post George Floyd, about racial inequality and racial equity and diversity and the role that businesses have to play in light of all of that context. So hopefully that's enough for people who are investors to care. I think that is enough. And, and I think a lot of investors, what they do, you know, you look to the past to project the future. What are some of the things in, in the history of time can you point to to say, wow, if we don't do this, it could really uh, increase our risk as a society um, and as a planet? Well, you know, I think environment is a great example of that. I feel like, you know, initially, if you look at the 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 kind of arc of environment. It started off as kind of like a fringe hippie thing, right? Like people care about the environment. Then over time, it became something that was like a risk mitigant thing. Oh, well, I need to have something to say about the environment so I don't get my hands slapped. Now, and only recently, I think, particularly as I mentioned, as humans, as we feel a problem, we want to solve it. Are we starting to get into what are the opportunities we can go to now as a result of making the environment better? Um, whether it be cars and, and having them be hybrid, whether it be getting out of coal, um, you know, those types of things. And I think that whiplash now towards, oh, wow, what are the opportunities in conjunction with don't get my hand slapped? We're still trying to figure out the right balance of being realistic about where we are today on everything that has taken us to harm the environment or be in the position we're in and what it will take for us to get to tomorrow. But we're, at least we're on the right trajectory there. And in, in, in terms of the G, you know, we covered a lot of the E and the S in terms of the G, right? 2000, was it two? Sir Bonds Oxley, you know, we want better accountability, more transparency in our governance. Is that what you're referring to in terms of the G and what are some best practices that you've seen? Yes. Yeah, so as a company, when we work with, um, we either work with investors or companies to embed equitable impact into their day-to-day -day practice. And lots of times what we use as a tool is something that we've worked on uh, with this group called PolicyLink and uh, FSG and Just Capital called the Corporate Racial Equity Alliance. So this is a group of people who are trying to really address this issue at a systems level. And we use the CEO blueprint for racial equity. And so that's something that we've developed with uh, over several hundred business leaders on what does good governance look like. And so CAPEQ, as a methodology, we've always said, as a business leader, if you're going to embed equitable impact, it has to be at every portion of your business. It's how you make your money, how you spend your money, and how you invest in your people. And so the CEO Blueprint does a really great job of, for each section, breaking down what does good look like. And so that helps people think about governance beyond just what I often say irreverently, butts and seats, and more about how are you embedding this change throughout your organization. And what has been some of the pushback that you've received from something like this? Like it's new, and anytime there's something new, it's just like, you know, it's just change, right? Like people will always resist it. Uh, what are some of the, if you have experienced any feedback, what has it been? Well, I think, you know, for me, I think one of the pieces that maybe is my superpower or the thing that is helpful, all of the companies that work with me say, um, Ty, we like working with you and CAPIQ because one, you understand business and two, you meet us where we are. So the pushback that I've seen in the industry is, unfortunately, there tends to be a lot of intellectual and moral superiority 
particularly for people who've been about that ESG life for a while or about that impact investing life for a while. It's like, oh God, thank you everyone for catching up to me. I'm such a visionary, right? So people are like, oh God, I don't even want to talk to them. I'm going to be embarrassed about sure. where we are. Yeah. Um, and I think the other piece that we often see, particularly for folks in the diversity, equity, inclusion space or potentially racial equity space, is that that work has traditionally been in nonprofit, in philanthropy, potentially in the public sector. So the lexicon is different and the translation is different. And so as those groups try to bring these methodologies, which by the way, aren't new, you know, a lot of the policy link, for instance, who I've been working with has been a racial equity advocate for several decades, but it's new to business in some ways to think in that way. Mm -hmm. So the translation tends to be a problem. And so those tend to be the biggest barriers I face when working with groups. And I, I know when I've, I've kind of made a difference, whether it be working with um, Walmart or working with the Carla group, when you start to see people's like shoulders go back, they're like, okay, all right, we can get there. Because the goal is not to make you feel bad for why we are where we are. The goal is to help provide measurable bite-sized chunks to get you to where you want to be. And give you a, a breath of fresh air as well, right? <laughs> well, um, hopefully. <laughs> I like what you were saying about you know, the, I don't know what the, like, Patreons or, or people that kind of a little snobby or say they, they're very philosophical. I love that. I mean, when it comes to, like, the actual, like, company change, operationally, is that where you find the impact most enticing as an investor? Um, tell me the difference between, like, marketing and, like, impact in marketing and, and brand visibility and operational, you know, sustainability at the core. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you've mentioned this before and several guests have, you know, there's a big pushback on, you know, whether it be greenwashing, uh, equity washing, whatever, and this is racial equity washing. There's a lot of that going in space where it's brochureware. And so that's why when you work with CAPIQ, it's not a box checking exercise. In fact, we, we screen you out. You have to be ready for us because it's gonna take work to get there. And so that's where the good juicy stuff is to me. It's mm -hmm. beyond, oh, is there a problem with harming the environment? Or, oh, is there a problem? Should we have more women on our team? We gotta get past that. And then when you are past that, it's really about meeting a company where they are. So whether it's a company or investor, what we do is we think of the Venn diagram of, what is the root cause of the problem you're trying to solve? So if you think about ESG, there's so many things in it. So like, what is like the highest and best use or the greatest bang for your buck in that kind of impact circle? Then we think about your organization's passions, values, and vision. And then last week, we think about the unique resources and assets you bring to the problem. That Venn diagram is where you should start with impact. And the reason why that's helpful is because you know, you know, I mentioned before that people are like, oh my God, if we're so behind, I don't even know where to start. It's this feeling of being overwhelmed. Like there's so many things that we could tackle or there's so many things that are wrong. I don't even know where to start. And so centering it on that Venn diagram actually allows people to choose the things where they do well by doing good that are core to their business model. Choose the things that are core to what their people are already doing. And so for us, we like to say, this work can't be a side hustle. It's about the steak, not the parsley on the plate. Well, the only way you can do that is if it's core to who you are as an organization. So an example of that, if it's helpful, is you know yes. I worked with 
of private equity firms. So private equity is a great um, niche market for us because they're both, right? You've got the investor side and then you have the portfolio company side. So I was working with a private equity investor. He had a, a company that scanned paper. So I was doing my little thing with my team. Like, oh, you know, what are you going to focus on? You know, environment would be great. You haven't been positioning yourself as environment. And for them, it's not that environment didn't matter. It was that for them, what they were more passionate about was what can we do to help support our people? Right. And so if you think about document management overall, that is kind of a, a industry where it's low wage. You know, you're not seeing tons of people being promoted. They're physically people still removing staples from, from documents. And so off, off tops, it doesn't look like a business that would drive impact. But coming from a cross-sector background, I said, you know what? There are so many people who are, you know, past adjudicated, um, potential members of have had domestic abuse in their lives, former immigrants. This is actually a great first job for someone coming back. And we built a partnership with talent pipelines with other community-based organizations. We built a partnership with the community college locally. And then we also built uh, relationships with the public sector. And because they were having a social impact, they were able to begin charging a premium on their document scanning services. And document scanning is a commodity type businesses. So every cent, actually penny, every penny matters. Mm -hmm. And that was all because of them starting with people. So it's when you center in that way, it really points you into some interesting places where you'd never know you'd be. And that's what I find fun. Like, that's what I think is really exciting about this work. Interesting. So reduce, did you reduce recidivism? Were you taking people out of jail or is it more, you said entry level people, is this just a strategically placed talent acquisition, lowering the cost of hiring and increasing the price of their paper because now they're a premium brand? increase their margins as an impact company is that did it decrease recidivism did or did i, did I uh, throw that in there accidentally no you didn't so th for this business i gave them an example of all these different folks that they could partner with okay. they didn't partner as much with past adjudicated folks but what we saw we saw two things we saw increased premiums because yes they could raise their prices so from an investor hey is it making me more money yes it is um, we actually saw increased promotions from people of color. We saw increased retention. We actually saw multiple people getting college credits as a result of it. So the workforce overall was actually having a higher quality of life and moving forward. And so you got those two dimensions of outcomes, like the how you invest in your people, you started to see a really positive impact there and how you make your money. Now they were able to kind of tap into and position themselves differently. And it wasn't equity washing. They were actually doing the work. Right. And I think what you did there is you really built a bridge. You know, it's like, like what you said, you know, like people get so overwhelmed when they're coming, like, how do we do this? Like we, we, we make paper and we scan it, you know, how, how can we become an impact company, you know, and just what, you know, what a great story that you can tell now. And, and that's really going to have a you know, ripple impact throughout the world. Uh, let's talk about future goals for you. Um, where are you going with Cap EQ Impact? What are some of the goals that you're working on this year? Absolutely. Well, this is our 10-year anniversary, and our wow, theme is tenacious. Thank you. Yes. So uh, our theme is tenacious, and the capstone of this year is actually my second book. So it's coming out in the fall. Um, it's called Your Customers Want You to Be Good, Why Social Impact is Good for the Economy and Business. So I'm excited about that. That's kind of a big, it's a short-term thing. Um, but, you know, CapiQ's vision is to change how the world does business. 
And you know that's a pretty lofty goal. So the way that we look at working with that is we work directly with companies and investors, like I mentioned, we'll solve for systemic problems that we're seeing across the field. So that's like the CEO blueprint or other work that we've done, for instance, with the Global Impact Investing Network to build racial equity investing standards for 15,000 global users. And then we use that to kind of accelerate change. So it's not enough if CAPIQ just grows really quickly. What's most important is if what we're doing is inspiring others to change how they work. And so influencing the field, sharing what we're working, what's working, what's not working and why is just as important to us for our own growth as our own growth. And I think the last piece of it is that you were really committed to closing the racial wealth gap. And to us, that looks like our employment model is different. So we have a really small full-time staff and we intentionally work with what we affectionately call Avengers, where it's other people who are either women-owned or smaller um, businesses run by people of color who have their own superpowers. And so we view an Avengers assemble based on the needs of companies. So every time Cappy Q grows, there are at least two to three other companies growing as a result of that partnership. For us, we're pushing ourselves to constantly reimagine if we are trying to change how the world does business, then how does it start with us looking in the mirror and doing that ourselves? So those are some of my goals. That's it's really inspiring. And you know what a lofty goal that is, but one that's so necessary. Um, this racial wealth gap, let's talk about that a little bit. If you are are now increasing the wealth of more individuals. How do we stop this cycle from continuing, right? It's the only thing that's going to tear our country apart, right? When, when someone has a lot more money, it's just a, a major concentration. It's the only thing throughout history that has torn down civilizations. Um, how do we stop this cycle? Well, you know, I think it's I think it's really about to that point about addressing root causes. So, you know, stepping back, what is the racial wealth gap? An easy way to think about it is Based on where we are today, let's take Black Americans, for example, it would take 228 years, and it might be longer now post-COVID, for the average Black family to have the same wealth as the average white family. I ain't got that much time. I don't know know if you do, but I, I don't have 228 years. And my grandma lived to be 101. So I might be here a little longer than other people, but definitely not 228 years longer. And wealth is a really important centering focus because people think about income. And we were all told, I was told growing up, you know, if you get a good job, if you get a good education, if you buy a house, you'll be better. But that's an income piece often. What does it look like when this person who went to the same school as you started with more wealth. It means that everything that you do, you're always going to be a bit behind. Mm. So it's a combination of, yes, doing all the things that we were told to do, get a good job, get a good education, but also peeking under the the, um, hood about how did wealth amass so quickly? Mm. And the answer is oftentimes it was driven by biased policies whether in the housing market, when you think about redlining and people of color not having access to mortgages, which means your granddad and my granddad might've been able to buy the same home, but one was allowed to and the other, it was against the law. Um, Whether it be owning a business, uh, what we see from our work with business growth is that, you know, black business owners are three times less likely today, not even historically, to get access to financing than white business owners. Holding all the other credentials 
constant. And so you can kind of go through all of these layers of, all right, well, if those types of pieces are in place, how are we actively changing those policies while also accelerating kind of the rocket fuel that we're putting, you know, whether it be towards business owners, towards fund managers of color that can actually help see and address and make sure that people are getting the short-term issues around income. So that's how you, that's how you do it. I think it, it once again, overwhelms people, um, which is part of why we helped start this coalition three or four years ago now called Path to 1555, which is an effort to fuel Black business growth. And so Path to 1555 is based on research that if 15% of existing Black businesses could hire one more employee, it would result in $55 billion to the economy. And that's the floor, not the ceiling. That's the conservative uh, concept. And so that allows us to come up with a set of key performance indicators that you can wrap your head around on, all right, what are all the levers that need to be pulled in order to start the momentum, start the flywheel towards Black business growth? And the reason why business growth is important is that Black business owners are 12 times wealthier than their non-business owner peers. So that's just one way of closing the racial wealth gap. I mean, there's a great uh, researcher named Derek Hamilton who has a whole thing about baby bonds. So it's like these kind of interventions. It's not just the mom and pop send a kid to school and get a scholarship. Some of these systemic structural issues actually have to be intentionally addressed. Absolutely. And, and baby bonds. Interesting. I'd love to hear about those uh, at some point. You should have Derek Hamilton join the show because I can't talk about baby bonds yeah, like get, Derek Hamilton can. Get him on, of course, of course. I'm more than happy to have him on. Um, ten years you've been around. Two years ago, COVID happened, right? That whole thing where we had to stop what we were doing, and those are external factors, right? And, and that really created a big separation of wealth inequality in this country, around the world. What did you experience? You know, I actually wrote an article about this right smack in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, first of all, I, like everybody else, was freaked out, completely freaked out. So let's forget about the business part for a little bit. You know, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I have two kids. I'm now a school teacher. So there is that going on, which was not good for anybody. Nobody wants me teaching school. So it's trying to teach, you know, a four-year-old and at, at that time, a four and a 12-year-old was really overwhelming. And then the other piece was I had just secured a couple of big contracts and we were waiting for paperwork to be signed. Crickets. Crickets. And I had just hired a couple of people because of that contract. So I wasn't sure if we would still be in business, to be honest, because those contracts were a big deal on the people that, you know, to fund the wages and the salaries of the folks that I just hired. Good for me that I had, you know, a CFO in place who helped us navigate PPP. You know, very few businesses of color and women-led businesses were able to access PPP for all the structural reasons that I mentioned to you before. You know, good for me that I had, you know, that same CFO helped us. We made sure that we had, you know, a cushion and our cash and all sorts of things. So I could weather that storm. Good for me that sooner or later, these people called back. And so like two months later, two months into the pandemic, I really started to get those contracts starting. But that two months for me was the difference for others of make or break your business. And when you look at the data now, that make or break two month window 
disproportionately affected people of color. Yes. Because they didn't have access to some of those resources. And frankly, if you do a comparative analysis, mine wasn't like super beefy either, but at least I had something. Right. Right. Yeah, I was, I was curious to know about that because it seems like that those are like the major cataclysmic events that really create the separation and start to cause, you know, an internal conflict in the countries. I'm interested to know if, if you've looked into or um, have any thoughts on like what uh, federal fiscal policy or tools that the, the government could use to really um, direct funds back into the places that need it most. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we work really closely. One of our research partners for Path to 1555 is Brookings Institution. And so every year we do a state of Black business report. And so one thing that's pretty interesting is that, you know, several years post-pandemic, what, what we actually saw was a surge of Black-owned businesses. They were micro-businesses. But we saw, despite the pandemic, a surge of those um, as a result of the fact that, you know, it was kind of the silver lining in other businesses were closing, people were getting laid off, a disproportionate number of workers of color or workers of color were in kind of those laid off businesses. So we're seeing a surge of those firms. And what those firms need to grow is, you know, more capital. So when you think about that barrier about uh, debt, regardless of the forms of capital, they don't tend to land in, in communities of color. So being more intentional about uh, getting capital to communities of color including changing potentially some of the policies and practices that have prevented or biased that capital in the first place. There's also this accelerator um, by the Cincinnati Minority Accelerator Group, I believe, where they have um, a background in kind of building accelerators and partnering with Fortune 500 companies in procurement. So that's another great thing that, that federal policy could do. They also have recently launched the Minority Business Development Agency. And so that business is, or that new uh, federal agency under Biden needs a little bit more resources and teeth to be able to kind of drive some of this growth. And we've worked with um, some of the folks from the Department of Commerce and others with a coalition of folks uh, to drive inclusive economic growth. And those are just a few of those policy issues. I mean, you've, what you keep mentioning it are like resources, right? Resources, connections, knowing people. And you had a, a CFA and, and, and they didn't, um, you know, to you, how would you change collaboration to create a lasting impact? Did you read that I wrote a book about that? Is that why you threw that in there? I'm just curious. <laughs> well, I actually, as you know, I actually wrote about that in my book, Just Change How to Collaborate for Lasting Impact. And so that is really about me, you know, capturing and sharing the stories of other people doing this important work across the country. And for me, it was really important to show it might be new to you, but it's not necessarily new. And I don't mean you, Kevin, but like, you know, people when they're wrestling with these problems and they're really passionate about them, once again, get overwhelmed because it's new to them. And I wanted to share all of these bright spots that we're seeing with amazing, powerful leaders across the country doing this work. And when I kind of distill what are the most successful features of a collaborative, the first and most important thing is that it centers and is grounded in people and community. So lots of times, a great example, we talked about housing earlier. Oh my gosh, there was redlining. Let's fix redlining. How do we fix redlining? We build more houses. So the unit of change there is house. Mm, it's not yeah, person, sure. it's house. As opposed to, oh, there was redlining. How do we make sure more people in our community have access to 
not even have access, are living in affordable and quality housing. It sounds like a semantic, but it's the difference between what I say, when do you high five? Am I high fiving when units are built or am I high fiving when people are in houses? So we all got to know what our high five is about. Um, the second piece that I, I see that it's really important about a collaborative is well, I, this is a quote I got from this brilliant woman who I worked with in Newark, New Jersey. And she said, collaborations are a potluck. It's not poker. It's about what you bring to the table. It's not about you running the table. And so I feel like lots of times collaboratives are really a poorly, thinly veiled excuse for a lot of people to sit in the room and hustle for whatever it is they want. But if you're first grounding the needs of the community, you second have to show up in a way where it's really about the goal and not about you, which leads to the last speech, which is you get what you measure. So really being explicit about what are the outcomes? How will you know? How will you know if you make a change? So I'm always really working with people to have very clear outcomes on that. And it's about, are you doing the right things and you're doing them right? And it's that feedback loop of that. So if you have those three pieces, that's what makes out outcomes lasting. That's what makes collaboration lasting. That's what makes me feel really confident that we can change a lot of the big problems that we've seen in this world because people created it so people can solve it. I love it. How do I avoid trade-offs from collaboration? Hmm, I don't know if avoiding trade-offs is the right, the right frame for it, to be honest. I feel like, is there anything that happens in the world where you're not trading off? I think it's more about how are you intentional about what trade-offs you're making and are, do you know what the impact of those would be? Hmm. So, you know, there's a trade-off for me to drive a hybrid car versus drive a car with gas. You know, hmm. is it a trade-off that I'm willing to make? Some people are like, oh my God, I can't even believe you're mentioning gas cars, particularly now in these crisis. But, you know, I think there are a lot of people up to this point before the Russian invasion where they were okay with that trade-off, right? But it hits a point where when gas prices in California are $6.50 a gallon, you may revisit what that trade-off looks like. And so I really think it's, it's not about um, not having trade-offs. It's about being intentional about those, those trade-offs. Because you mentioned Ukraine, I'll go there. Um, just one thought on that. I, I tend to stay away from the politics, but there, there's a question to be had here with the responsibility of business, right? And the, the businesses cutting off ties to Russia, good or bad to you uh, in the long term? Uh, we're seeing videos of people fighting over sugar, uh, the people of Russia starving, losing jobs, you know, things like that. Um, with a dictator who may or may not care, uh, we don't really know yet. Um, what do you, do you think the response? I guess the response from businesses has been farsighted, or do you think it's been a little bit nearsighted? You know, it's interesting. I was at a conference just last week, and we had you know all sorts of brains that are much bigger than mine around the room. And so I feel like there is a cadre of investors, particularly who did not invest in Russia. And overall, in, in these panels, they're saying we minimized our, our risk right. with Russia because we were seeing human rights violations. We were seeing da 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 da. And the interesting thing is, I think the people who didn't overreact, you're not hearing in the news right now. What you're hearing in the news right now, the people are like, oh, snap, we didn't think this was going to bite us. And so they're like, ah. And they're moving really quickly because of that public pressure. 
Um, and so I, I feel like overall, the question would have been kind of similar to one of the guests that you had before, like, what did you do to differentiate yourself before there was a challenge? And how did you create something new as a result of it? And, and when I think about Russia, particularly, the question that comes to mind is the reliance on the fossil fuels and gas and things like that. So people who were farsighted on that are not feeling that pinch right now. That's, that's a different question than, are we doing what we need to support Ukraine? Mm. You know, that's a different question than, what is our responsibility for ensuring other humans are safe? And I would say that gone are the days that any one country can't be a global citizen. We're too interconnected. COVID showed that we're interconnected. So I think it's what the right intervention is not, it's way above my pay grade, but I don't think it's okay for us not to have an intervention in some way because it will ripple and hit us anyway. We're too interconnected to not care about the plight of other people. And lastly, like that's not our values. Right. So. No, absolutely. And, and I think we're in this age of, you know, realizing the global supply chain and, and its footprints, right? Obviously, people, people have been talking about this for a long time, but from an impact investors and, and consultants perspective, you know, what is good when it comes to a global supply chain with cheap labor in these organizations, let's say in the Philippines or in China, providing maybe decent wages there, but not really you know, ethical business practices or safe places to work in from an impact investor's perspective. Uh, what are your thoughts with the global supply chain? You know, I was once again in a different conference and one of the speakers said, we went through this wave of the last 20 years. In fact, I was still, you know, working corporate America during this time where we wanted just in time. And so because what our values were when we thought about the supply chain, we want it cheaper, we want it faster, and it led us probably potentially away from more ethical practices. I think now what the global supply chain shocks are showing is that people now want just in case. And so that's going to ripple potentially in a way in the costs of what some things are. But you know what? It's better for it to cost a little bit than to not get it at all. And I think that's an interesting opportunity, particularly for this conversation about equitable impact in that so much of the supply chain, and in fact, back in the late 90s, I was in IT. And so, you know, I had a lot of, I was the project manager in an IT group, but a lot of our consulting or contractors were from India or from Mexico. Like they weren't, there was one me in the United right. States and a team of like 10 to 15 developers from all across the country. And so that meant that to look for cheaper, to look for faster, we were looking outside of our walls. What does it look like for us not to go native because we are a global economy and we are global citizens, but to use this as an opportunity to address the very things you were saying about, oh, you know, some people have, some people don't have. And the longer you have that kind of gap, the more challenges that's going to put in our economy, the more challenges that's going to put in our democracy. So can we use this moment to actually channel investment in a way that does close some of these inequities? Because you're spending it anyway. You just weren't spending it locally. Right, right, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. And, and are there any uh, regions around the world that, that you, I guess, let me rephrase this question. Are there any... Um, signs or factors or indicators that you look at when you're looking at investments globally in other countries that you say like Russia, we're going to mitigate our risk here and not go with investments. Are there countries or, or other, I guess, how do you perceive um, 
what a good country to invest in is, I guess. Yeah, I feel like that is not where I actually engage. That's generally where I'm advising other people when they're thinking about engaging. Um, but one of the folks that I was talking about, we were thinking about that very question who most of her investments are actually in global emerging markets. What she looks for is these bright, bright spots. So, you know, let's say you had, you know, let's, you, let's say you had a whole bunch of different people manufacturing something that was paper. And, you know, of the 30 groups that were doing it, um, one to two of them were doing it in a way that was sustainable. And of those one to two, maybe two or three of them had, were starting to just be on the cusp of, you know, how do you treat people well in, the same, in that same box? And so she's looking for these little, um, she called them baskets. She called them value baskets. So when she goes to global markets, she looks for the value baskets. And then within those global value baskets, then she kind of cuts into like, what's a handful of winners in this value basket. And she says, um, she does that particularly in moments where there's huge negative externalities because the market tends to overreact as a result of it. And so she knows that it's gonna course correct sooner or later. And so that's kind of how she looks at those pieces. So that's one example of some of the people that we work with, how they look at global markets, if it's helpful. Yeah, definitely helpful, very far-sighted too. Now, Ty, you told me uh, your whole goal is to change how business is done. What is the future of business to you? Future of business, um, to me, so I mentioned before I used to be in IT. This is when I was younger and had more energy. And I was a 20-something, snot-nosed person coming out of school. And the internet was just, you know, there's, we were still using Netscape and it was pets.com and it was all exciting. And I, the Jack Welch was still at GE. And he says, I need everyone to destroy their business.com. That's what we're going to do, destroy our business. So let's get these young kids and do reverse mentoring. Let's let them teach us how to turn on computers. I mean, it was really basic stuff. And I was like, okay, general manager who's like 60 years old and runs like a multi-million dollar institution. This is how you buy your wife a gift <laughs> on the web. And then they asked all of us to kind of start the e-business division. And our job was to figure out all the different dot-com things we could do within the e-business division. And like, that's what it was like in the 90s. It was all revolutionary. And, and no one says e-business anymore. Right. It's just business. And I think that's, to me, what the future of business should be. Mm. It's not about impact investing. It's just about investing. It's not about ESG. It's just how we do our business. That's the future of this work. And I was at a different conference. I promise I don't go to conferences all the time, but I've been in a lot of conferences lately. I think I missed being outside. Um, where one of the speakers said, you know, we talk a lot about this younger generation being digital native, but what we really need to consume is that they're also impact native. And I think that's another reason why this next wave of leaders running business won't know any other way, won't believe there's any other way, but doing well by doing good. And help reverse mentor to the people listening to this. What does impact mean to you? Uh, impact means to me leaving the world better than you saw it. I know that sounds cheesy and cliche, but you know, I like I mentioned to you before, I really like sci-fi. And I feel like everyone 
is a Neo in something from Matrix. Like everyone is the one in something, right? And so maybe you're the one in, in health-related issues. Maybe you're the one in getting water to children who don't have it. Whatever the thing is, but how did you make this world better than where you found it? And that's what driving impact looks like. And maybe your superpower, back to the investing, is having the capital to fuel those visions and dreams. I love it, yeah, far-sighted leadership. Uh, making decisions today that are going to impact tomorrow. Ty, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? My definition of a real leader is someone who has the vision to inspire and the humility to be inspired. For Ty uh, Boye Robinson, I'm Kevin Hours asking you to go out there, have the vision to inspire, and always, folks, Keep it real. Thank you, Ty. Thank you. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Relayers membership. If you want to get access to all of Relayers Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a $100 a year subscription. Hit the link in the show notes. Enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive access to all of Real Leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode, and always keep it real.